that. You know, when we last met, we we had started in Exodus. I just feel like we've kind of lost the momentum of all that. And uh, on vacation recently, I was reading through Joshua and Judges and came to Judges and so much in the book of Judges that reminds me of today. Uh, just everybody sort of going their own way and doing their own thing. And uh, so I wanna, I'm, I'm not saying we'll go through the book in its entirety, but I do want to cover a bit of it. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, or last week, I believe it was, I, I covered about uh, Gideon. So we'll come to those passages and skip, okay? Because I've covered those recently. But I do want to hit some high spots in Judges, and we may want to hit a little bit more than high spots. But I want to talk about neglect and restoration. And tonight we're going to look at the subject matter from hope to despair. You would hope it would go from despair to hope. But in Judges, what do we see? It goes from hope to despair. Because the book of Joshua closes out on that high note. They're going in and, and taking possession of the land. But the book of Joshua opens up. I mean, the book of Judges opens up. They are not taking the land completely. They're leaving some of the Canaanites in the land. And that's going to cause them devastation in the long run. And so instead of from despair to hope, it's really a story from hope to despair. Okay? Find, uh, find Judges chapter 1. We're going to read a lot tonight, okay, uh, as we get started. So I want you to find chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we'll read down through about verse 12 or 13 of chapter 2. So a lot of reading initially tonight. Stay with me, okay? After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. I hereby give the land into his hand. Judah said to his brother Simeon, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. Then I too will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They came upon... Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites and Adonai Bezek fled but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes Adonai Bezek said 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table as I have done so God has paid me back they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there then the people of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They put it to the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the people of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. The name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talm. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kiriath Sefer and takes it, I will give him my daughter Aksah as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him his daughter Aksah as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. 
As she dismounted from her donkey, Caleb said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Give me a present. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also Gulat Mayim. So Caleb gave her upper Gulat and lower Gulat, which means literally basins of water. The descendants of Hobab, the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev, near Erod. Then they went and settled with the Amalekites. Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they defeated the Canaanites, who inhabited Zephath, and devoted it to destruction. So the city was called Hormah. Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ascalon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it three sons of Anak. But the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived in Jerusalem among the Benjamites to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. The house of Joseph sent spies to Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. When the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. So he showed them the way into the city, and they put the city to the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. So the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shion and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. But the Canaanites continued to live in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not, in fact, drive them out. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, but the Canaanites lived among them in Gezer. Some phrases here I want you to underscore how much they're repeated is did not drive out, did not drive out, did not drive out. You'll notice that. And then another phrase you'll see repeated is lived among them, lived among them, lived among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Akzib or of Helbah or of Afik or of Rahab. But the Azurites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country. They did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites continued to live in Parheras, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the, but the hand of the house 
of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I promised to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. For your part, do not make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my command. See what you have done. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become adversaries to you, and their gods shall be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the Israelites, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bokim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Bokim means weepers. When Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites all went to their own inheritances to take possession of the land. The people worshiped the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, so they buried him within the bounds of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gesh. Moreover, that whole generation was gathered to their ancestors, and another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and worshiped the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were all around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and worshiped Baal and the Ashtartes. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the power of their enemies all around so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. That's a mouthful to read, isn't it? In his book, Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay, Gary Enrig writes, hoof and mouth disease is a scourge in the cattle industry. And an outbreak can decimate a herd very quickly. Therefore, when the disease hit one cattle area a few years ago, authorities clamped on a strict quarantine to isolate and control the problem. Seems kind of familiar, doesn't it? There was one rancher who was determined to save his livestock. He carefully sprayed every building on his farm every room of his house, and every vehicle on his property. He then moved all of his animals into a carefully scrubbed and disinfected building, padlocked the door, and restricted all contact with the outside world. No visitors were allowed on his property. And he even went to the point of picking up his newspaper at the front gate with sterile gloves and then baking it in the oven to make sure he killed off all germs. Yet, 
despite his efforts, within three weeks, his cows became ill and the herd had to be destroyed. As one health officer noted, the virus is transmitted through the air and you can't quarantine the air. Folks, in our time, there's a wind blowing. The me generation. I'll do what I want to do the way I want to do it. There's a virus of relativism that's infected every area of life as well. People become authorities to themselves. They ignore God and others and they turn inward and they start doing whatever makes them happy for the moment. God becomes little more than a lucky rabbit's foot that you call on when you need him and put him back in your pocket when you don't. Our society is increasingly secular, humanistic, increasingly pagan, and becoming more and more anti-Christian. Have you noticed? If ever a verse of the Bible rings true of our day to day, it would be the last verse of the book of Judges that says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, folks, when all of these elements are present, relativism, paganism, individualism, selfishness, secularism, when all of these elements are present, societies will collapse, families will collapse, churches will collapse, and there'll be upheaval and chaos all around us. Now, what we're going to see tonight is the slow and deceptive downward spiral of compromise in our walk with God. You know, there's lots of temptations as we live in this world. But if we begin to compromise, even in small ways, the end consequence of it all can be far greater than anything we would have anticipated. And so there's no substitute for wholehearted obedience. First thing I want you to see with me tonight is a good start. A good start. You may want to write down verses 1 to 11. A good start. Now, we know from our Old Testament history what God was doing with Israel. Back in Genesis 12, who did God call out of Ur of the Chaldeans? He called Abram, right? And through Abram, of course, he changed his name to Abraham. He promised to raise up innumerable descendants of Abraham who would become a new nation. And they were to be the people in covenant with God. And they would see God. They would experience God working in their midst. They would see him doing mighty things in their midst. They were to be God's people in the world. They weren't to exist simply for themselves. They were to exist for God and the glory of God. They were to be distinct. 
And as a distinct nation, they were to be a witness and a light to the other nations. And if they were going to maintain that role, what would they have to do? They would have to remain uh, to, to keep up their separation from the world. And as God told them in Leviticus, you are to be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. God's plan was to drive out the Amorite, the Canaanite out of the land, and give it to the descendants of Abraham. The Amorites, the Canaanites, could not be allowed to stay in the land because God knew if they stayed in the land, the descendants of Abraham would inter intermarry with them and they would become a compromised people in the long run. Now, lest you feel sorry for the Canaanite, remember what God had told Abraham he was going to do in Genesis 15. He was going to send Abraham's people down into Egypt in bondage for 400 years, giving the Amorite time to repent. In over 400 years, they did not repent. God gave them every opportunity, and they did not repent. And so God was going to drive them from the land and give their land to the descendants of Abraham. And that's what happened in the book of Judges, in, what, in the book of Joshua, and what continues to happen in the book of Judges. God's people are entering the promised land, driving out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and they are taking possession of the land. So what started in the book of Joshua is now continuing in the book of Judges. And so what do we have here? We have a good start. We have a promising beginning. They seem to be on track for obedience. And you know, there's some parallels here with the Christian life, aren't there? When God saves us out of the world, God keeps us in the world to serve him, but we are not to become like the world. And then he puts us in a Christian family, the church, where we encourage one another and pray for one another and help one another. And again, the Bible says there's to be a separation in our lives from the world. Paul repeats this to the Corinthians. Come out from among them and be ye separate. We're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. This is God's plan with us. So we read these first verses of Judges, and so far, so good. They're ready to serve. They're ready to advance. They're ready to grow. When asked who should go up first, what did the Lord say in verse 2? Judah. Judah means praise. Think of that. Judah was a testimony that God is to be first, and he is to be worshipped and praised. If we get that in the right order, all else will follow, right? So even the name Judah is a testimony to that. In verse 3, we see another a wonderful principle being played out. The blessings of brotherhood in the faith. Believers helping one another. It goes to Simeon. You help me and I'll help you. 
Now, you know, too bad in some ways that the book of Judges doesn't just stop right there. Well, in verses 4 to 7, we read about their first victory recorded in Judges. In verse 6, we see the principle, you reap what you sow, right? They pursued and caught Adonai Bezek and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Now, it could be argued persuasively they should not have mutilated him this way. If anything, he was to put, be put to death, not mutilated. They were to drive him out and put him to death. But a bigger principle, larger than that is, I think, is that you reap what you sow. Right? This is what this ruler has been doing to other rulers. And now what he's been doing is done to him. But anyway, by, by following what this ruler has done with other rulers, instead of killing him, they're mutilated, you can see in a way that the people of Israel, there's already a little bit of a canonization that's happening with them. They were to be different from the people of Canaan. But now they're mutilating this guy. But again, certainly you reap what you sow. We see that principle. Second thing, from verse 12 and verse 20, I want you to see an encouraging brother. We're introduced to Caleb. You remember Caleb, right? Joshua and Caleb. Caleb's one of the heroes in the Bible. You know, Caleb doesn't get the press that he deserves. Remember what he did when, when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land? Only Joshua and Caleb came back and said, we can take the land. Yes, the people might be big, we are like grasshoppers in their sight. But if God has told us we can do it, we can do it. Joshua and Caleb were the only two who were ready to obey God. When Caleb was 80 years of age and they were going into the promised land finally, what did he tell Joshua? He said, give me my portion of the land. Give me that mountain. I'm as strong today as I was in the day when we spied out the land. God had kept him strong these 40 years. And so now he's age 80, and he's ready to take on the enemy and do what God had told him to do. So Caleb is a great man of faith. He's one of the, he's one of the saints you want to meet in heaven when you get to heaven one day. In verse 20, we see Caleb defeating a very intimidating group, the sons of Anak. The sons of Anak were what? They were giants. And in verse 12, Caleb is encouraging others. He's encouraging others by saying, whoever attacks uh, Kirjath, Sephir and takes it, I will give to him my daughter Aksot as a wife. Apparently she's quite a looker. And whatever soldier 
leads out in the charge and, and attacks these people and conquers them, I'm going to give my daughter's hand to that warrior. So what's Caleb doing by saying this? He's encouraging others. Guys, let's get busy. Let's win this victory. Now remember, kids back then, the, the, the parents would do arranged marriages for the kid. It's not, it's, it's not that he's doing something that wasn't done. This is what they did. The father would take the lead in doing this. He's promising his daughter to, to a man who's courageous and faithful and wins the victory. It's probably not a one-sided thing for the man, the soldier who wins his daughter's hand, but also he's wanting his daughter to end up with a soldier who's faithful and courageous. So he's looking after her future too. He wants her to end up with the right kind of man. You know, we need churches full of Caleb's today, right? Who are ready to rally the troops and encourage their brothers and sisters to be faithful to God. Third thing I want you to see is a wasted opportunity in verses 24 to 26. I see a tragedy in this story. They find a man coming out of the city who leads them to the gate so they can go in and take the city. Does he remind you of anybody in the book of Joshua? Who's he remind you of in the book of Joshua? A female. Rahab. But now there's a distinction here. You know, Rahab welcomed the spies and they gave her the opportunity to be included in Israel's number. And she jumped at the chance. And she gave a wonderful testimony to Yahweh, Israel's God. And she becomes a member of the family of faith. In fact, she becomes such a changed person, she's even in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. So don't tell me that God can't change a person. She was a Rahab. I mean, she, she was, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, and she's a changed woman. So you would think this man would be like that. He tells them how to get into the city and take the city. But then what does he do that is so much unlike Rahab? He doesn't seem to be want to be included among God's people. He just goes off. He goes off and builds another city. You see what I'm getting at here, the difference between him and Rahab? Like Rahab, he tells them how to conquer his city. But again, unlike Rahab, he doesn't confess Israel's God is the only true and living God, and, and he doesn't take steps to be counted among the Hebrews. He just becomes a traitor to his own people and then goes off on his own and builds another city. So talk about a missed opportunity. My goodness. He's somebody who is looking after his present, but he's apparently not thinking one bit about his future. 
Well, a fourth thing I want you to see, a case of incomplete obedience in verse 19 and then verses 27 to 36. In verse 19, we see the beginning of failure on the part of God's people. They let the chariots of iron of the enemy intimidate them. Don't you see how people do that even today? Lord, our problems are too big as a nation, too great. What can we do against enemies like this? And so we give up. Sometimes we don't even try. We, we, or we give in. We conclude that the tide against us is just too strong and we give up the fight. That was kind of their mindset here. In verse 27, we see that the Canaanites were determined. They're determined. They won't be driven out. The Canaanites continue to dig in their hills and live in the land. Don't you think God's promise could have helped God's people to overcome opposition like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And God had told them, drive them out. But Israel saw the enemy as too great. And so they let them stay in the land. The beginning of disobedience here, right? In verse 28, Israel grew strong. When they grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not, in fact, drive them out. What are they doing? Lord, we'll do a substitute plan to yours. Instead of obeying you and driving out the people you've told us to drive out, we'll let them stay, but we'll make them our slaves. Boy, now that sounded good from man's viewpoint, right? Let's just make them slaves. We've got work that's got to be done. We've got to plant fields and raise flocks. Let's just let these people stay, but make them slaves. But what's the problem? That wasn't in accordance with God's command. So again, they're substituting their plan for God's plan. I tell you what, in about 32 years of being a pastor, from time to time, I'll have somebody sitting in my office. Oftentimes, it seems to be a woman who's crying. Her marriage is falling apart. Pastor, I thought 10 years ago when I married this guy, I know God's Word says, don't be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. He was an unbeliever, and I knew I shouldn't marry him, but I thought, you know what? I can change him. I can change him. She has this plan about how she was going to do that. But it didn't work out. Our substitute plans don't work out when God's told us to do something His way. So what do we see here in Judges chapter 1? What, what do you see being communicated here? There's a slippery slope that's begun, right? You see it? Slippery slope. 
We're going to let some of these people stay. They're big. They're powerful. They're numerous. They've got chariots. God's told us to do this, yes, but it's just too hard. It's too difficult. We'll let them stay. We won't drive them out. And so you, you can see this downhill cycle is beginning. You, you can almost sense the troubles coming on the horizon, can't you? They're not trusting God. They're not trusting God. And you know what? They're going to pay for it. Today's disobedience, today's disobedience is going to cost tomorrow's blessings, right? Or it's going to hinder tomorrow's blessings. Well, in chapter 2, I want you to notice that judgment falls. In verse 3, God says, all right, I'm going to give it to you your way. So now I say, in verse 3, I'm, I'm reading, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become adversaries to you, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It's like God saying, okay, if that's the way you want it, I'm going to let you have it that way. I tell you what, folks, one of the worst things God can do is let us go our own way. If you don't believe that, read Romans 1, verses 18 to 32 in Romans 1, where repeatedly Paul says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. He says that three times. God gave, they wouldn't listen to him, and so God gave them over to do whatever they wanted to do. That's not something you want when God gives you over to your sinful ways. It's a downhill spiral. God says from now on these Canaanites are going to be thorns in your side. Now what's so tragic here is that God's people have rejected God's best for them. God would have helped them accomplish what he commanded them to do. God never gives us an assignment without the ability to complete the assignment. When God calls us to do something, He's there with us. He helps us. He gives us His Holy Spirit, and He gives us whatever strength and power and gifts we need to accomplish what He's called us to do. God knows we can't, we can't obey His commandments without Him. So God would have helped them. And God had the best for them, but they rejected all that. They rejected God's best. Had they obeyed God's best, they would have ended up in the long run dwelling in a land with peace, with a, with a brotherhood among them, all of them worshiping God, right? But instead by compromising, doing things their own way, letting some of the people of the land stay, they are setting themselves up for continual battle, not only with those people, but with their own sons and daughters intermarrying with them and, and turning to the gods of the Canaanites. When we reject God's best, 
Second best or worst is always what we're going to end up with. Now, notice what happened. When they compromised and it started this downhill spiral, look at where it took them. Not only did they have the Canaanites to deal with, but verse 10 of chapter 2 says they ended up with a generation that did not even know God. You let one generation turn their backs on God and the next generation takes it a little bit further and then the next a little bit further, the next a little bit further until you end up with a people who don't even know God. Folks, can you see America in that today? Little by little, as a society, we've moved away from God. Oh, we don't want God in this arena. We don't want God in this arena. We're not going to have God in this arena or that arena or that. Little by little, we distance ourselves from God. And now what have we ended up with? It's tragic, isn't it? Don't tell me the Bible's not relevant. What's happened to these people here is what you and I see around us every day in our, in our nation. I've told you before about years ago, a number of years ago now, had a young man sitting in my office, knew nothing about the Lord, knew nothing about the Bible. He said, my parents never took me to church. And I started asking him basic Bible questions. He didn't know anything. He didn't know any of the characters of the Bible. He didn't know anything about the verses. Verses of the Bible. I even asked him about John 3.16. He said, what's that? I said, you don't know anything about John 3.16. He said, Pastor, I told you, I've never been in church. My parents never took. Y'all didn't go at Christmas and Easter? No. I read him John 3.16. He said, is, is that what you see in the end zones at football games when somebody holds up JN 3.16? I said, that's it. He was clueless. Another young couple, I was sitting on their couch one evening visiting with them. The girl had been raised in church. The boy had not. Her parents had given them a beautiful painting, one of these classic paintings. There's, there's two of them. One of all the animals getting on the ark with Noah and the other one when they're getting off of the ark. And they had one of these paintings. I mean, they had a nice one her parents had given them. And she and I started talking about that. He said, that's in the Bible? He had no idea. What's my point? Little by little, decisions we make, removing God from here, removing Him from there, little by little, generation after generation knows less and less and less. And you end up with a generation who knows not God. It's tragic. One generation ignores God, the next generations pay the price. Now folks, remember the book of Judges in its context. The book of Joshua closed out by the people saying to Joshua, we will follow the Lord. And Joshua said what? You can't unless you're going to wholeheartedly. You can't serve him. 
You can't serve him and then live for your own desires at the same time. And what did the people say? We realize that, Joshua. We hear what you're saying. You don't need to worry. We're going to follow God wholeheartedly and not compromise anything. And Joshua said, okay, you've said it. Even the rocks here are a testimony and a witness. So that's how the book of Joshua closed out. And he had them sign a covenant and put up a big rock to commemorate their decision. And so in just a short period of time, they've gone from this determination, we will obey, we will follow, to now they are a generation who do not even know the Lord. Sad. Sad. But they've compromised along the way. They've compromised. It's sad, folks, is it not? And it starts in small ways. Somebody says it's just a little compromise, just maybe just this once. It won't matter. And then it they do it again. They neglect God. They neglect their relationship with God. They go their own way. It, it becomes easier and easier and easier. It's a sad downward spiral. Don't think that it can't happen to you. Don't think that it can't happen to people today. It's already happening. Read the book of Judges and, and you see the misery, the sin, God's judgment, all, all of that that they got into and it's like reading today's headlines. Do you ever wonder today when you read today's headlines, how did we even get here? How did we even get here? I'm sure especially some of you older folks in the room think that, right? When you remember back to how things were in your childhood, how did we even get here? But it happens little by little. As people compromise and disobey God and the ripple effects that has. You see, you don't sin in isolation. When we sin, we affect other people, don't we? God's word wasn't their anchor anymore. Again, the book's going to close out by just saying every man did what was right in his own eyes. Certainly don't want to depress you as we read Judges. But what I want us to see when we don't obey God and guard our hearts, when we don't remain vigilant, this downward spiral happens. And it can happen quicker than you think. 
And it can happen to you and me. You might think, oh, no, that, you know, somebody else might do stuff. Not me. Yes, you. Yes, me. You start compromising. Start neglecting your relationship with God. The downward spiral begins. It picks up steam. And you'll end up in places you never thought you would have ended up in your spiritual life. I want to ask you to look into your heart and life tonight. What standards are you beginning to relax too much? Are there compromises that have begun with you? Has the canonization of your heart already begun? Have you concluded that some things about the Christian walk are just too difficult? Just too hard? Maybe you see where some little compromises are beginning to take a bigger and bigger foothold in your life. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You know, what we're going to see in the book of Judges is the pain, the oppression, the suffering that begins. Maybe there's even been something in your life that started that it's, it's God's way, some hardship or suffering. I'm not saying it's always His way, but it could be. God's using something in your life to begin to call you back the way He was using hardship in them and suffering. To call them back. To call them back. Maybe there's something in your life that if you look at it for a minute, think about it say, aha, you know, God's using this to call me back to Himself. Are you going to listen? Are you going to respond? Any comments? Any questions? That you might have any insights or observations you noticed that I overlooked. Anybody? I just want to say, just kind of flippantly, but not really. It's better to be safe than sorry. You know that old saying? Sure, sure. Right here. Amen. Use your safety net. Amen. Pastor Scott, we're studying uh, Proverbs. In Sunday school on our Zoom plan. And throughout the book of Proverbs, you know, you're looking for wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Does this generation even know what that means? Knowing that every day. And, and the sad thing, Kathy, that many, not only do they not know, they don't care. That's disturbing. And that's where more and more in our society are today. They don't fear God. They don't even care that they don't. One comment. I have a certificate laying on my desk at home. It says I, committed, I completed the required 
Bible study course in school, public school, and it was even third or fourth grade. The New England primer that was used in American public schools up until I think about 1930. If you read some of the lessons that were given to first, second, third graders, early elementary kids, some of the questions, I would say a significant number of adults in churches today, active in church, probably couldn't answer a lot of those questions. And those were questions asked of early elementary school kids. I mean, questions like, describe the doctrine of justification, give details and explanation and sanctification, glorification, questions like that. I mean, some rich, rich theological questions that first graders were expected to answer in one of their public school textbooks. You ought to try to look up the New England primer that was used in elementary school and read some of the religious questions and tests in it about the Bible. And see for yourself what I'm talking about. They also learned the alphabet by memorizing scripture. Yes. I'm proud of my daughter, Brooke Williams. Y'all probably know her Sam. She is a teacher at Northside Christian. She teaches Bible, and she also teaches science. So she teaches science with a biblical view, not this worldly view. Amen. Amen. Yeah, today in public school science classes, you can't even teach creationism as an alternative evolution it's not that's not even allowed we learned something cool Monday night I don't know if you all know Dorena Morgan or not she's a, she's a missionary she came out first Baptist I think is she anyway she's in Guatemala well she's here <clears throat> for various reasons and one of the things that she does in Guatemala is she teaches English to the Guatemalans, mm. if that's what they're called. And she does it through Bible verses. It's the words in the Bible verses that she's teaching them to speak. Is that not awesome? It is. Blew me away. I saw that's, that's the way to teach somebody English. Right out of the Bible. <laughs> 